0: Welcome back to The Three and a Half Wives of Julius Caesar. Last time, we looked at his first two wives, the ignored and forgotten Cositia and the gone far too soon Cornelia. This week, we look at his last two, scandalous Pompeia and far-seeing Calpurnia. I'm not here for the grand schemes, and now neither are you. Long history, very short. I'm Alana, and this is Little Slights, where I discuss the women who lived and died in the shadows cast by history's limelight. Let's talk about the three and a half wives of Julius Caesar. Pompeia's story ends in shame, but she was descended from greatness. If Cornelia and Caesar had been the product of losers, Pompeia was the daughter of winners. Her grandfather had been Lucius Cornelius Sulla, dictator of Rome until his resignation in 79 BC. Her father, Quintus Pompeius Rufus, was the son of a consul. Her distant cousin was Pompey, as in the Great. By the time she was of a marriageable age, Pompeia probably had her pick of the lot. We don't know the date of Pompeia's birth, some historians putting it around 87 BC, but we can't assume she was born in Rome. She had one brother, another Quintus Pompeius Rufus. Her paternal grandfather and father were both murdered in 88 BC, the former by Nea Strabo's soldiers, the latter by supporters of Gaius Marius, who, if you'll recall, was Julius Caesar's uncle. Which, perhaps, made it a little awkward when Caesar approached her brother in 67 BC, a year after Cornelius' death, and proposed a marriage between himself and Pompeia or perhaps it was not Caesar's idea at all, but Quintus's, or an advisor's. Whoever made the call, they miscalculated. Not entirely. Obviously, political clout was the entire goal of this marriage. This was a power match, a building of the bridges between Sulla, Cinna, and Marius, all of whom were dead, by the way. But image was important, and names even more so. Caesar had just returned from a successful year as quaestor in Hispania, and was now seeking to shore up support in Rome including that of exulens to see caesar wed the granddaughter of the man who chased him out of rome barely 15 years earlier would have been quite a sight for some romans so in 67 the two were married pompeia at a rough estimate was 20 caesar 33 the miscalculation came not in the political ramifications no that was going swimmingly 2 years into their marriage and caesar had been elected consul ideal a position that made him in charge of public works and celebrations, staging games and festivals that made him the center of attention in Rome. No, the miscalculation was personal. Pompeia and Caesar seemed to have practically no interest in each other. They didn't have any children, and though disdain would have probably been too strong a term, there's nothing to indicate the two even got along. By 64 BC, the first whisperings of what would become the grand love affair between Caesar and Servilia noblewoman and mother of Marcus Brutus, were arriving in Rome. Pompeia reportedly had roving eyes, too, but Pompeia did not have the luxury of being a man. Her wandering attentions would soon come back to bite her. Backstory first. In 63 BC, Caesar got himself in a bit of a scandal, if you could call it that. He won the election for Pontifex Maximus, chief priest of the Roman state religion, but was accused of bribery in doing so. No matter, the votes spoke for themselves, and Caesar had won comfortably. But then came the Catiline Conspiracy, in which Lucius Sergius Catalina, together with several other aristocrats, planned to overthrow the consulship of Marcus Tullius Cicero and Gaius Antonius Hybrida. Catalina was exposed and forced to flee Rome, but rumors scattered in his wake that Caesar had been involved in the plot. Thrown into this very tense situation was Publius Clodius Pulcher, an ambitious, charismatic senator who lived a very colorful life, one with some strange similarities to Caesar. He had been chased out of Rome in his youth like Caesar, but his exile was for accusing Catalina, yes, the same Catalina, Rome was a very small city sometimes, of adultery. He was abducted by pirates like Caesar, but instead of getting a high ransom in return for his person, he got a ransom so small the pirates let him go out of pity. He nearly died to a mutiny he may have caused. He was accused of incest when he made it back to Rome. He forged wills, probably killed some people, and he almost joined the revolt of the man he had once accused of adultery, Catalina. He was also considered by some to be a great leader of the people who organized several street gangs. He was an interesting man. Slippery and duplicitous, but interesting. It was easy to see why a bored housewife might find him attractive. A bored housewife like, say, Pompeia? And perhaps there was mutual interest. Perhaps there was an affair. Or perhaps there was a potential tragedy only barely averted. We're 2,000 years separated from December 5th of 62 BC, and the truth of what happened on that night. We'll probably never know. Here's what we do know. In Caesar and Pompeia's house on the Via Sacra, Pompeia was hosting the festival of the Bonadea, the good goddess. This festival was a sacred event, which no man was meant to enter. Pompeia, as wife of the pontifice Maximus, would preside over the rituals along with her mother-in-law Aurelia. The story of what happens next always starts the same way. Clodius dresses himself as a woman and attempts to invade the ritual. The reasoning is where this story differs. One, he and Pompeia, already entangled, had arranged a tryst with the help of her maidservant. Two, Clodius, seemingly on a wild hair, attempts to find and seduce Pompeia during the rituals. Or three, Clodius attempts to find and hurt Pompeia during the rituals. After these three variations, the story once again converges. Clodius takes a wrong turn and is discovered by another servant, and is arrested for impiety, the first man to ever besmirch the festival of Bonadea. But imagine being Pompeia, the first woman to ever ruin one of these sacred festivals. The embarrassment would have been immense, but it wasn't over. Clodius was taken to trial, testified against by Aurelia and Caesar's sisters, perjuring himself before those judging him, but he still got off scot free. Caesar refused to testify, probably not wanting to alienate the rather sizable chunk of Roman society that supported Clodius. Pompeia was not so lucky. Caesar divorced her almost immediately. Why? Not because he believed Pompeia guilty, but because scandal would not be tolerated in his household, even if, as was very possible, It was a scandal Pompeia had no way of preventing. I maintain that the members of my family should be free from suspicion, as well as from guilt, said famous adulterer Julius Caesar of his wife. To be completely fair to Caesar, however, there is a chance this was not the utterly cold decision it sounds like. By maneuvering the trial in the way that he did and by separating himself from Pompeia post-haste, he did not have to lodge direct charges against his now ex-wife for what happened during the festival. This kept Pompeia out of the line of fire, and her prospects after their marriage were still relatively hopeful, which meant her family and their fellow Sulan supporters were kept happy with him as well. So, perhaps not so cold, just a little frosty. And in the end, divorce was common in the Roman Republic, and the rate of remarriage was high and often speedy. A man named Publius Vatinius, quaestor and friend Caesar, was married later in life to a woman named Pompeia. Many suspect this Pompeia and Caesar's ex-wife are one and the same. Like Cositia, we have no date of death for Pompeia, and she disappears from the record once her time with Caesar is done, but Pompeia probably preferred it that way. A wife above suspicion, at last. History says Calpurnia could see the end coming. But she likely didn't have even an inkling of where her path would end when it began. Calpurnia was born in 76 BC to Lucius Calpurnius Piso Cisaninus and his wife. She would have one half brother, another Lucius Calpurnius Piso, but he wouldn't be born until 48 BC. Piso, her father, was a solid figure in Roman society, a man of good reputation and heritage. He raised a shy, demure daughter, one who, like him, was interested in philosophy, literature, and history. Through her own actions, Calpurnia would also prove to be doggedly loyal, determined, and just as devoted to her ideals as Caesar was, even if those ideals seemed much smaller in the grand scheme of things. Calpurnia was just 17 when her father introduced her to her 41-year-old future husband in 59 B.C., making her barely older than Caesar's own daughter, Julia, possibly even younger if you put Julia's birth at 83 B.C., as some do. Caesar had just been elected consul, and like the previous one, this marriage was entirely political, as Piso was aiming for his own consulship the following year, which he got. Caesar had, at this time, also become a member of the first triumvirate between himself, Pompey, and Marcus Licinius Crassus, and was now related by marriage to Pompey through his daughter Julia. Caesar's power base at this time was secure, but it never hurt to have next year's consul in his pocket. And indeed, it paid off quickly. The next year, Caesar went off to conquer Gaul, with the full support of Lucius Calpurnius Piso behind him. Calpurnia and Caesar had a scant few months together before his departure, but it should be noted that unlike Pompeia and Caesar, Calpurnia did seem to manage to forge a real affection between herself and her husband in that time. Not enough to stay his wandering eye, but enough. Ultimately, however, how they felt about each other was moot. Caesar left for Gaul in March 58 BC. He would not return to Rome for nearly nine years. Calpurnia lived in the house on the Via Sacra that Caesar had kept since his appointment as Pontifex Maximus. As matron of the domus, or home, she was in charge of maintaining the property and taking care of Caesar's assets while he was out on campaign. She likely woke in the mornings, was bathed and clothed by one of her legions of servants, looked over the books, and then sat down at the loom. Wool-spinning and weaving were an expected part of a Roman woman's daily life, even the noble ones. Women taking care of the estate were expected to be frugal and pragmatic, investing wisely and funding public works, and there's nothing to suggest Calpurnia was lacking in these areas. When she was finished with her duties at home, Calpurnia might have ventured out on the streets in her litter to visit with friends or stop by the baths. She perhaps went to see the debates at the forum or the plays held around the city. She probably spent her nights either hosting dinners or perhaps attending festivals, of which Rome had many. And then she went home to rest so she could start the day all over again for the next several years alone. She celebrated Caesar's victories, feared his losses, and turned a blind eye to Servilla, and turned a blind eye to Servilia, Inoue, and his many other mistresses. Calpurnia's solitude was not unique nor as painful as, say, Cornelia's may have been. She lived as the model Roman wife to an exceptional Roman man. Caesar's daughter Julia died in 54 BC, a loss which devastated Caesar and drove the wedge that had been dug between Caesar and Pompey, Julia's husband and fellow triumvirate member, even further in. As a result, Calpurnia was almost divorced by her husband in 53 BC, when Caesar sought to marry another Pompeia, this time the daughter of Pompey, hoping to shore up relations. But negotiations ultimately fell through. And life went on, as normal as could be, right up until 49 BC, when Caesar's civil war began. Calpurnia actually got to see her husband that year, as Caesar returned to Rome for a smattering of months here and there. But soon he was off, chasing Pompey around several continents and getting involved with the Ptolemies in Egypt. He was made dictator of Rome in 48 BC, an appointment that was supposed to last only one year, then was stretched to ten. Then, a brief glimpse of her husband in 47, and again in 46, where Calpurnia stood by his side as he celebrated his great victories in marches and triumphs, and ignored the Egyptian queen that Caesar had brought back to Rome with him and installed in a villa on the other side of the Tiber. The one who had just given birth to a son she had named Caesarian. It had to sting Calpurnia a little to hear the whispers about Cleopatra and her boy in one ear, and whispers of her own barrenness in the other. A rather rich claim, since the making of a child requires the presence of two people, and Caesar had spent scarcely three collective years in Calpurnia's company. There are some sources that claim she was close, as close as someone like Calpurnia could be, to Mark Antony. Supposedly, she might have privately confessed to him that the situation with Cleopatra and her own lack of a family did sadden her. But that, like everything else, is just another whisper in someone's ear. Calpurnia, to all appearances, was a devoted wife. By 45 BC, Caesar had positioned himself as the ultimate power in Rome. It was no surprise that several senators and officials saw him as a threat to the Republic and plotted to dispose of their new tyrant. As the new year began, as Caesar crowned himself imperator and dictator for life on the senate floor and conspirators plotted in dark rooms, and a house on the Via Sacra on a cool night in March, Calpurnia began to dream. She dreamt of Caesar dying. Stabbed, broken, bleeding in her arms, she dreamt that the honors bestowed upon him fell to the ground and shattered. That night, all the doors to the house flew open, and when Caesar awoke in shock, he looked next to him and saw his wife, anxiously murmuring in her sleep. The dreams might have been brought on by stress, as there had been numerous ill omens cast at Caesar's feet in the weeks preceding the Ides of March, and one would have to be blind not to see the discontent in some of the senators. But history has long been fascinated with Calpurnia as a prophetess, helpless in the face of tragedy. But she wasn't. Helpless. Not completely. Calpurnia did try. When the couple awoke the next morning, Calpurnia pleaded with her husband to not go to the senate, that she had had a terrible dream, that all the omens were true. And Caesar relented. He felt poorly that day, and Calpurnia's distress was convincing. He was going to stay home, until Decimus Brutus, brother Marcus, came to the house to fetch him. The two men were close friends, and Decimus teased Caesar for being frightened at a woman's dreams. They left together for the senate. Sometime after his departure, a friend came to Calpurnia, telling her they had heard of some terrible plot against Caesar but didn't know the details, and would wait with her for him to return. Over four hours later, he did. Calpurnia ran from the house to greet him. There he was, carried on a litter, cuts covering his body, one arm hanging limply off the side. Dead. Julius Caesar had been assassinated. Calpurnia threw herself over him in grief, castigating herself for not saving him, and then bade the slaves to take Caesar inside. As the doors closed behind them, word began to spread, and Rome began to burn. What happened in the wake of her husband's death is perhaps more indicative of Calpurnia's personality than perhaps anything she did while he was alive. The city was in uproar, and there was no way they could have a proper funeral for the ruler of Rome. So Calpurnia watched over his body. For days, she guarded him, until such times she could deliver him to the people who could properly prepare him for his funeral. While she guarded the body, her father Piso worked to make sure the fallen dictator's will would be carried out and every preparation be made for a funeral. Eventually the chaos did die down, and a funeral was held. The crowd, incensed at the assassination, caused the funeral pyre to grow out of control and damage the forum. Sometime in the madness, Calpurnia slipped away from the house and ran to Mark Antony, to whom she gave Caesar's personal papers, including his will, his art collection, and his fortune. In Antony, Calpurnia thought she saw the future of Caesar's dream. She would be proven incorrect eventually, and power would come to rest in the hands of Caesar's declared heir, Gaius Octavius, the future Caesar Augustus. But that was far in the future. After all the wars had been fought, the traitors and queens killed, and the Republic crumbled. Now, Calpurnia had seen her duty through. Calpurnia demonstrated an awareness of Caesar's place not only in the current Roman society, but the one that would be built upon his ashes, and a determined devotion to what her husband was owed as an honored citizen of Rome. She had taken care of her husband and his household, as she had done for the last 15 years. She had helped establish and secure a future for her family in the political sphere. Calpurnia never remarried, and lived a quiet little life after Caesar's death. Another end she probably saw coming, but this time, a welcome one. I wish I could tell you the personalities of these women. How they felt, when they laughed, cried, what they did for fun, what they thought of Caesar— I want to tell you that Cositia loved plays, and that Cornelia had always been the best at hoop-rolling, that Pompeia was a secret wit, and that Calpurnia loved dogs. But those would all be lies, because all we have left of these women are the moments in their lives touched by Julius Caesar. And when he left them, so did they leave history. And I think for all four of them, that would be a fine fate. None of them were remarkable, nor were they seeking to be. Roman women lived in the shadows of men, and in the case of Caesar's three and a half wives, the very great and terrible shadow of a very great and terrible man. But, if nothing else, I do hope I've brought a little bit of them back into the light.